When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lance Percy, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Xiaoyun Yang about his new book, The Way of the Barbarians, Redrawing Ethnic Boundaries in Tang and Song, China, published by University of Washington Press. Uh, Welcome, Xiaoyun. Thank you, Lance. Thank you very much for having me. So... I wonder if you could begin um, by telling us a bit about yourself, uh, about your life and career up to this point, and what brought you to uh, write this book. All right. So uh, let me start at kind of closer to the beginning. I was born in Singapore. Um, My grandparents were immigrants from China. And uh, so by the time I went to college, which was in Singapore, I had kind of made a decision that I wanted to study um, early medieval Chinese history. Now, that was something that I had, had kind of fallen in love with uh, as a high school student, you know, just from reading around. I, it kind of started with the Three Kingdoms, right? I think a lot of young Chinese guys could have taken interest in Chinese history from reading the, the romance of the Three Kingdoms. So that was kind of how it started with me. Um, but then I started reading about the history that came after the... Uh, you know, the three kingdoms ended and I found that just way more fascinating. Um, you know, I think, it, I think it was just, it was much more uh, complex, right? Much messier. Um, and there were all these barbarian peoples. At, at that time, I didn't really know, I, I didn't really have a sense of why having all those barbarians in the story, uh, in, in the picture kind of made it more interesting to me, but I, maybe, maybe it sort of like makes more sense to me now. But uh, so I, I went to college with this, plan in mind. I was going to basically become a historian specializing in early medieval China um, and just uh, have a career writing books about that period. Um, so, and, and that plan pretty much kind of unraveled um, around the time that I did my master's degree, which was also in Singapore at the same university. So um, I had uh, an advisor um, in the master's program who kind of knew what I wanted to do. He knew I was like basically just totally obsessed with the early medieval period. And he wanted me to find a research question that really kind of meant something to me, right? So he asked me to kind of look around and try and figure out just, you know, besides just telling stories about this period that I was like just totally fascinated with, what question did I really want to answer that uh, that I felt hadn't been, you know, answered uh, very well yet? 
So I looked around and tried to, to find something. And uh, that's when I came across uh, a, a book review article written by um, actually your um, teacher at Birmingham, uh, Naomi Standen. Uh, this is the a review of the Cambridge History of China volume on the Conquest Dynasties. And it was the title of it was um, Alien Regimes and Mantle States, which is kind of um, uh, a kind of cheeky take on the uh, title of the volume itself, which was Alien Regimes and Border States. So uh, that article, uh, that review, I'm not not sure if you remember what was in it, but, uh, you know, it was very critical of this idea that the uh, so-called barbarians, right, these inner Asian peoples who came in to rule uh, part part or all of um, the Chinese empire uh, had basically become Chinese over time, that they had gotten so, um, you know, uh, assimilated by, uh, you know, Chinese culture um, that they essentially had become Chinese. Uh, So that kind of like that critique of how the sort of barbarian inner Asian involvement uh, in Chinese history uh, should be interpreted, right, or had been interpreted in the past, kind of got me interested in ethnicity. Um, and uh, I thought, you know, somebody should do this for the early medieval period as well, right? The Northern dynasties, right? The Xiongnu, the Qiang, the Xianbei, all these different peoples, right? I mean, I, I felt that I could see some of the dynamics um, and similar needs of kind of uh, rethinking or more critical thinking with regard to, you know, how we should understand um, how these dynasties were maybe different from the ones that had come before. So um, I started writing a master's thesis on this. Um, and here's another twist, right? Um, I, so after getting into this topic by ethnicity sort of by accident because of some prodding by my advisor, right? I wrote this um, master's thesis or I wrote, wrote a draft for it that had, you know, chapters on um, different aspects of different periods of northern dynasties. And then I decided, you know, there's so many concepts in, in this um, thesis, right? You know, like what is Hua and what is Yi, what is Han, what is Hu, right? All these terms um, that... I need to kind of actually unpack and try to trace the history of, because I didn't want to just take them for a face value as, uh, you know, of, this is what Han means and this is what Hua means. This is what Hu means. Uh, it seemed to me that uh, you know, there was actually a lot of ambiguity and uh, evolution over time in how these terms were used and how they were understood um, in, uh, you know, early medieval times. And I guess in the period after, uh, before that, and also in periods after that, perhaps. So I wrote a very long appendix, uh, going uh, term by term, co- conceptual category by conceptual category, right? Just to kind of, tra- kind of try and trace the history, uh, intellectual history, um, basically, of these uh, words, these terms, and how they were used from, I, I would say, I guess, ancient times, early Chinese times, like, you know, pre-Qin, up to uh, at least early medieval. So I turned in the draft to my uh, advisor and said, okay, here are my chapters, and here's this very long appendix um, that kind of really digs into what these terms have meant at different times and how they evolved and changed over time. And so, you know, he read it and then he said, you know, 
I, I really think you ought to scrap the um the chapters and just turn your appendix into the thesis, which uh you know came as a bit of a shock to me. Wow, yeah, right? yeah. Um, you know, just scrap scrap the main body of your thesis and really do something in this appendix because this appendix is actually way better. And he says, you know, this is more important stuff, right? The early medieval stuff. Yeah, that's I know that's very interesting to you, but you're really onto something. He said with the appendix, right? This is this is work that needs to be done and hasn't been done enough yet. Uh, so you know, that's that's kind of like how uh, tracing the evolution of uh, you know Chinese concepts of Chineseness versus barbarism uh, kind of became my uh, the, the main direction of my research and how I sort of. Uh, shifted from being someone who wanted to just work on the early, early medieval period into some uh, into a scholar who kind of like uh, looks across the span of early of uh, imperial Chinese history, uh, you know, not just early medieval, but also you know from early imperial or even pre-imperial period to you know potentially the late imperial period. Uh, just kind of looking at how ideas have changed over over this long span of time. Uh, so yeah, it was very unexpected to me. I, I did not expect to become a scholar who doesn't just focus on one period of Chinese history, but actually sort of like tries to look more broadly, um, you know, not just at early imperial, uh, but also at uh, Tang and at Song. Right now I'm looking at Yuan and Ming and also some Qing stuff. Uh, and, you know, every time I get into a different period, it's kind of like I'm starting anew because I don't really know what is out there. Um, but, you know, it's been very exciting to to do that as well, right? But also just, you know, something that I did not expect to be doing in my career. Right, yeah. And um, uh, you talk about the, the scope of your research touching all these different periods. Uh, so even though this book, um, The Way of the Barbarians, focuses on Tang and Song China, it actually has a really, really wide scope going way back into antiquity, but also also dealing with um, elements of uh, 20th century scholarship and evaluations of pre-modern China, and obviously makes its own contributions uh, to reassessing uh, the textual materials from this time. I was wondering if you could help introduce some of the, uh, some of the key words and frameworks that this book deals with. I think... Uh, primarily in the introduction, uh, you present us with the conventional narrative of medieval Chinese attitudes to foreigners and ethnicity. We often have this idea of cosmopolitanism versus xenophobia and these currents becoming dominant uh, or um, recessive at different periods. We also have uh, a prevailing notion of, say, cultural universalism versus ethnic uh, and ethnocentral nationalism. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain this, um, up until you were writing this book, the, um, the preconceived and prevailing notions of how the Chinese, uh, viewed outsiders and themselves. Right. So, uh, you know, until relatively recently, I would say, I, I guess, um, bef before the last 20 to 30 years, um, in, in, you know, our field, uh, you know, historians have tended to rely on, I would say, a, a triad or a trichotomy of conceptual categories to try and understand or try to, um, to to make arguments about what it meant to be Chinese 
in uh, pre-modern times. Uh, so you have culture uh, and the kind of concept that came out of that is, the, is culturalism or and a cultural universalism, I think, as you uh, were, were saying just now. Uh, and then you have uh, kind of contrasted with culturalism or culture or cultural universalism, often either nationalism or race or, you know, let's say racism or racialism. So uh, a lot of these, a lot of arguments that uh, were made in the um, you know mid to late twentieth century were framed according to this you know these three categories: this uh, you know conceptual toolkit of culture versus nation uh, or culture versus race. So you had the argument made that the um, that pre modern Chinese identity was mostly cultural and uh, you know not about uh, nation. There was no sense of uh, nationhood or national consciousness. Uh, or you have uh, a, a similar argument made that it was cultural, not racial. So the Chinese were, did not think um, of the difference between themselves and uh, the so-called barbarians right, or you know, non-Chinese peoples in, in racial terms. And usually what is meant by that is that uh, they believe that it was possible to, uh, to learn how to be Chinese. And on the flip side, it was possible to unlearn how to be Chinese. So, uh, you know, whether you're saying that uh, the Chinese were not nationalists before modern times or that they were not racists before modern times, right? The default category tended to be that they were culturalists. They thought that culture was everything, that uh, because you could learn to be Chinese by, uh, you know, learning Confucianism, for example, or practicing the right rituals uh, or learning, you know, how to, you know, read classical Chinese and write very good classical Chinese, uh, because of that, that meant that uh, being Chinese was essentially a cultural uh, concept. Uh, now, in the introduction to my book, I uh, kind of critique and ultimately reject the this use of culture to uh, understand what uh, Chinese identity was about in the pre-modern period, because I think the culture is... Uh, you know, Kind of, it's it's a much too broad and kind of uh, amorphous, capacious category, uh, and that uh, when arguments were made about uh, you know the possibility of uh, you know becoming Chinese perhaps or you know ceasing to be Chinese in the sources that I was working with in this book, uh, it's really not about something as as that we could call culture um, or. Or I guess maybe the better way to say it is that it it was not uh, related to many of the things that we associate with the category culture today. Um, so instead, I I, I tried to uh, be find some, some some way of talking about these ways of talking about uh, Chineseness that were more specific. I, I was looking for um, descript- a descriptive name or descriptive names for these discourses that were perhaps more precise and more clarifying than just calling them, you know, culturalism or cultural universalism. Uh, so the uh, two the two names that I came up with, and of course, you know, there is no Chinese equivalent to these, just as there is no Chinese equivalent to, to culture or nation or actually race for that matter. Um, these two categories are uh, what I ultimately chose to call ethnicit, you know, ethnicized orthodoxy. That's one of them, and ethnocentric moralism. Uh, and uh, the, the funny thing that I, I kind of discovered while you know building this framework was that a lot of uh, 
uh, arguments, a lot of sources, texts that uh, have been cited as evidence for, let's say, nationalism in Song China or xenophobia in late Tang China, right? Or let's say, you know, racial thinking uh, in those same periods uh, or culturalism, for that matter, uh, in, uh, let's say, the late Tang or the Song are actually would be better categorized as falling within these categories, right? So you have you have the same individual sometimes being, you know, one one thing he says is seen as culturalist, and another thing he says is seen as you know, cultural nationalist maybe or uh, or xenophobic, uh, and uh, you know there was a, a bit of a a confusion perhaps uh, in terms of how do you categorize these things, right? Uh, so just to give, give uh, you know a good example, I guess from the first few chapters of the book, right? You have Han Yu, the famous late Tang uh, Guwen prose writer, uh, who is commonly thought of as xenophobic, right? Anti-foreign because he said stuff about Buddhism uh, that, you know, we today would tend to read as being kind of exclusionary uh, and ethnocentric, uh, but uh, you know he's also often cited uh, in uh, writing about the history of Chinese culturalism, right? As you know, as evidence that yeah, the Chinese were culturalists. Just look at what he said in the Yuan Dao, right? This uh, famous um, essay that he wrote was that was all anti-Buddhist, but also anti-Taoist, right? In which he makes a statement that is you know, sort of re- reused and uh, kind of appropriated multiple times in later periods, and is still used and cited, or quoted very frequently, uh, at least in Chinese language scholarship, right, as evidence for culturalism, right? He says that the uh, when Confucius wrote the Chunqiu, the Annals, uh, he uh, basically regarded, uh, you know, uh, lords or rulers of Chinese states who uh, practiced barbarian rituals as barbarians. And he regarded... Uh, the lords uh, and some versions of the text have, uh, you know, he regarded bar- barbarians who uh, kind of uh, were promoted to the level of the central lands, which, you know, is Zhongguo, is how I translate the term Zhongguo, right? this idea of the civilizational core. Um, uh, uh, you know, he regarded lords or barbarians who practiced, who were promoted to the level of the central lands as people of the central lands or rulers of the central lands. So in other words, so you have this kind of uh, practice that, uh, you know, the Chunxiu comment- commentators uh, thought that they could identify in the use of language in the Chunxiu uh, of demoting uh, state rulers or, uh, or promoting them depending on their behavior, right? If they behave like barbarians, then, you know, the, the Confucius supposedly when writing a Chunxiu would speak of them as though they were actually were barbarians. And if they are, you know, if they have been demoted and, you know, started behaving better, or if they were barbarian rulers in the first place, but started behaving uh, in a way that was uh, more in keeping with certain moral or ritual norms, then they could be spoken of as though they were um, Chinese. Uh, And I probably should clarify what I mean by uh, Chinese here, right? What what words am I actually translating as as Chinese? Um, Would that be a good... uh, uh, thing to talk about? Uh, yeah, that would be really helpful. I was always also wondering, I think uh, this is a great example of the one you just gave of Hanyu for sort of uh, discussing also what you mean by these two terms that you introduce and that 
serve as a thread uh, through the entirety of your book, uh, the ethnicized orthodoxy and the ethnocentric moralism. Right. So ethnicized orthodoxy uh, is how I describe this uh, way of speaking about Chineseness as though Chineseness and uh, I guess you would say Confucian or classicist orthodoxy, right? So again, there's all these issues with translation, right? Can you translate Ru as Confucian? Can you translate Yi Di or Yi as barbarian? Can you translate Hua uh, or Xia as Chinese, right? The, so in the introduction, I kind of like really wrestled with these ideas, all of which have been controversial in, in one way or another in the last uh, you know 20 to 30 years. Uh, in in English language or Western language scholarship, uh, but uh, you know, just putting that aside for for uh, for the moment, uh, ethnicized orthodoxy is how I describe this way of speaking of uh, you know Confucian Han Yu's notion or understanding of Confucian orthodoxy as the essence of what it means to be Chinese. So that if you're not properly Confucian or properly classicist, if you don't follow what he calls the way of the sages. Then uh, you essentially are a barbarian, um, even if you don't know it. Uh, and you know, <laughs> Buddhism, of course, is is uh, what is uh, primarily sort of uh, directing that kind of argument against. But Taoism uh, actually is implicitly cast as somehow less less Chinese or non Chinese as well. And uh, as I argue in one of the later chapters in the book, um, in the Northern Song, Song period, you have admirers of Han Yu's writing. And admirers of Han Yu's ideological position, who kind of take take this to its logical extreme and argue that uh, you know Buddhism and Taoism are both equally barbaric um, value systems or religions or ideologies because they're not Confucian, and therefore they're not Chinese. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that this this is a really kind of fascinating uh, take that you do on a book called The Way of the Barbarians, where really uh it's a it's an intellectual history on a topic that is often dealt with in political and social history uh in terms of uh dealing with this idea of how ethnicity plays out uh in chinese history and what i really love uh about this intellectual history approach that you do to barbarians is how much it takes us back and focuses on the internal dynamics of of confucianism or classicism as you alternate between the two terms uh, in the book. And you look at these, these thinkers that anyone who's studied the history, uh, intellectual history of China, or has looked at also the history of Chinese literature, uh, several sort of familiar faces uh, and names kind of crop up. But I feel like you're addressing them uh, with this narrow but fundamental topic uh, in their writings and considering their legacy in light of that. Um, but uh, between uh, in these six chapters uh, of this book, uh, you deal with a lot of the key thinkers of the Tang and the Song. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting also to talk about uh, a key intellectual figure that runs throughout this book. Uh, that doesn't get a chapter because the whole book is sort of connected to this. I'd like you to explain um, briefly uh, in what ways are the writings and the ideas of Confucius and Mentius so important and fundamental to how these writers defined uh, Chineseness and ethnicity. Right. Uh, yeah, that's a it's a re- really really good and interesting question. I would say Mencius, uh, perhaps less so. Although you know Han Yu, essentially uh, you know popularized this idea of Mencius as being the last 
uh, last Chinese philosopher who really got understood the way of the sages. And uh, you know, basically after Manchus died, nobody really got it. And you know, Han Yu is the first person, well, at least according to himself, right, who um, uh, understood just what it meant uh, to be Confucian, right? Um, and then when you get to uh, the founders of Neo-Confucian philosophy, um, the Cheng brothers, um, Cheng Hao and Cheng Yi, they essentially deny that Han Yu was that guy. And they say it's it was it's actually us, that we are the first ones in a very, very long time, right? You know, like uh, a thousand years or more uh, who have understood um, the way of the sages. But uh, essentially... Uh, all the arguments that I'm looking at in this book really are framed around uh, the idea of what did Confucius think about barbarians. Um, and the assumption is, you know, I mean, the, this, the central assumption in all of these discourses and arguments and interpretations is that Confucius regarded the barbarians as fundamentally inferior to the Chinese. Um, so then the question is, um, on what basis did he regard them as inferior? Right. And is that inferiority permanent? Uh, what is the inferiority based on? Right. Or, or rather, you know, if you could flip it and say, what is Chinese superiority based on? What is, what, what does it mean to, uh, to say that the Chinese are superior? In what way are they superior? Right. And can that superiority be lost? If we know what the essence of Chinese superiority is, um, then we kind of like uh, can talk about, you know, whether the Chinese are superior under all, you know, all circumstances or whether uh, that superiority is something that can be, you know, uh, can be jeopardized or um, lost or relinquished if the Chinese um, basically do things the right, the wrong way, right? If they begin uh, practicing the so-called way of the barbarians, then they really are not superior anymore because they are, there's nothing really distinguishing them or marking them as superior from any other people. So uh, a lot of the arguments revolve around the idea of, uh, you know, Confucius saw this thing and this thing alone as the essence of Confucian, uh, of uh, Chineseness, right? So for the for Athenized orthodoxy, it's Confucian orthodoxy, right? If, uh, if you're Confucian, uh, then you're Chinese. Now, of course, then it comes back to the question of what did Confucius think that Confucianism was, right? I mean, Confucianism is itself a, a very uh, kind of, uh, it's, it's a concept or uh, you know, an idea that's open to interpretation. What is Confucianism, right? It ultimately comes down to the idea of what did Confucius actually um, actually believe or teach. And of course, that, that, you know, that can be, the, there, there was a, and could be debate about that, uh, but uh you know, at, at least one side in that debate, uh, the side represented by Han Yu and the people who were uh, who came after, who were basically trying to follow in his footsteps, would argue that uh, uh, Confucius uh, basically regarded all other philosophies than his own as being fundamentally barbaric and un-Chinese. Um, so uh, that kind of ideologically exclusive uh conception of what it meant to be Confucian was not necessarily actually widely held in the tongue, right? Han Yu was actually out, uh, an outlier. He was um, in many ways uh, a fringe figure in the late tongue, right? Um, and and mm-hmm. that, that's why, uh, you know, in the book, I 
tried to push back against this idea that the, the late Tang was fundamentally different from the early Tang in that it was xenophobic, it was more obsessive orthodoxy. In fact, the mainstream of the late Tang is, I think, uh, you know, numerous uh, Western scholars of Tang intellectual history have begun to realize right, the mainstream of the late Tang was not represented by Han Yu. It was represented actually by people like Liu Zhongyuan. Right or even by non guwen writers like uh, you know for example Anthony de Blasey has written quite a bit about this figure Quan De Yu, uh, mm. who you know he argues was really you know the, the representative or the kind of like the most prominent figure in the late Tang literary literary and intellectual mainstream right so the late Tang mainstream essentially was a very pluralistic uh, way of looking at the differences between Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism, and the question of whether these could actually get along, coexist, actually complement each other rather than compete or uh, be in conflict. Right, yeah. And I really like your presentation of Han Yu in this book. You have uh, the first two chapters uh, uh, deal quite, quite in detail with Han Yu, the first pretty much more or less devoted to him. And it was a very kind of different image of Han Yu than I had seen uh, in other writings that place Han Yu and the Guwen uh, movement as a really seminal and pivotal, important po- uh, post uh, in in Chinese intellectual history. And then in chapter two, you sort of deal not only with Han Yu, but his debates with Liu Zongyuan. And I thought this was really fascinating because you sort of brought out not just the ideas, but the the, the personalities uh, uh, and the sort of the nature of the relationship between Han Yu, Liu Zongyuan, but also other people around Han Yu, including relationship between Han Yu and Buddhists that he knew. And I was wondering if you could elaborate this. Um, how did uh, Han Yu's intellectual ideas, uh, if indeed, uh, I, I should note that there you do kind of label Han Yu more as someone who engages in rhetoric than necessarily philosophy as we would understand it. And uh, you talk about the internal inconsistencies sometimes of his writings, but how does how does his ideas that conveyed in his writings and then his interpersonal relationships sort of play out? Right. So you know, Han Yu's uh, as I was saying, Han Yu was not necessarily even the mainstream uh, of the Guwen uh, kind of tradition of prose writing. Um, you know, Liu Zhongyuan to some degree was more typical. Uh, most of the Guwen writers were actually pretty okay with Buddhism. Um, some were actually pretty pious Buddhists. Liu Zhongyuan was was one, but he was not by no means the only one that was uh, really quite into Buddhism um, while writing Guwen. Uh, so Han Yu was uh, really kind of going against the trend, even even within the Guwen community. Uh, but what uh, is interesting is that uh, you know in the uh, in the early 11th century, right, early to mid 11th century. Uh, so we're talking about Northern Song. When when the Guwen uh, tradition is uh, kind of undergoes a revival, a liter- literary revival among a uh, certain uh, group, or you know maybe not more, more not, not one group but more than one group of uh, Northern Song literati, uh, uh, the, these guys do not only try to imitate Han Yu as a writer, but much more so than Liu Zhongyuan. Right, Han Yu is really there their idol or their um, you know the, their model uh, they all some of them are not all of them but some of them whom I call Guwen radicals in the book also try to really out Han Yu Han Yu ideologically right they try to kind of um, basically uh, position themselves or uh, you know 
present themselves as being Hanyu's intellectual successors in this idea of ethnicized orthodoxy, this idea that uh, that uh, you know, the, the problem with Chinese civilization, why it has declined, why it uh, no longer uh, really practices the way of the sages, uh, is basically that you know ideologically the Chinese have gotten all mixed up. They have gotten okay with Buddhism and Taoism uh, and a bunch of other ways of thinking about the you know about the world and about uh, you know what civilization is about and that uh, there is a need to purify Chinese civilization of all these non-confucian influences right so uh you know i think as you mentioned lance uh you know hanyu i don't see him as a very intellectually coherent thinker i don't think that was really his concern that was not really his interest he was always looking for better ways to express himself more effective or you know more powerful ways to express himself in writing, right? So he was always looking for um, great uh, ways to uh, craft polemical writings, for example. He was also pretty creative and, you know, he wrote humorous uh, humorous literature as well. So he was not, he was not uh, you know, a person obsessed with uh, just one thing, right? I, in, the, in the book, I think I described him as, uh, you know, a literary hedgehog trying to be an uh, ideological fox. Oh, wait, um, maybe it's the other way around. Sorry, an, a literary fox trying to be an ideological hedgehog. Yes, uh, yes, yeah. I remember yeah. the quote, yeah. So, uh, you know, he basically could do anything with writing, right? You know, like just a limitless uh, creativity with the written word. But he also felt that he needed this one big idea uh, just to be taken seriously. Um, and it was a big idea that actually, like... As I said, most of his peers found kind of strange this idea that Buddhism was the problem, that uh, you know Buddhism has to go in order for Chinese civilization to revive and become what it once was. Uh, not many people actually bought him on this, or kind of th- thought that he was uh, he was right on this. Um, even the Guwen writers uh, around him, um, but he did create this uh, this big idea, which uh, then took on a life of its own in the Song period. Uh, not in the late Tang. Uh, it kind of went nowhere in the late Tang. But then, mm. for some reason, in the 11th century, uh, not only the Guwen, Guwen revivalists, uh, not all of them, I think Ouyang Xiu kind of was skeptical about the Han Yu's way of thinking about Buddhism, right? Uh, but uh, some of these more radical figures like Shi Jie, uh, or Liu Kai, uh, who actually was more of a late 10th century figure, uh, they really latch onto this um, big idea that Han Yu had that uh, there is this thing called a way of the sages that was transmitted from Yao and Xuan to King Wen and King Wu and uh, then to Confucius and Confucius revived it uh, when it had undergone some some decline and then it passed down to Mencius and then after Mencius died it just kind of like just got forgotten nobody understood it anymore and then the decline lasted for a very very long time um, and then along comes Han Yu and says, well, you know, I, I'm going to revive it because I, like Manchus, uh understand what the Weight of Sages really, is really about. So, uh, you know, the Guwen writers, some of the Guwen writers um, really like this narrative of Chinese history as not a narrative of dynasties rising and falling, right? But a narrative of the Way of the Sages being revived and then lost and then, you know, potentially being revived again. Uh, but it's not just the Guan writers, because uh, as I think, the, I think the last chapter in the book explains, the um, Neo-Confucian philosophers really take to this as well. 
Um, that's why, as I was saying a little earlier, the Cheng brothers make this claim that it's pretty much copied from Han Yu, right? That we are the ones who rediscovered the weight of sages. Uh, it was lost of dementias, but you know, Cheng Hao um, rediscovered it, and you know, now that Cheng Hao is dead, Cheng Yi is going to pass it on, right? So they are not giving Han Yu any credit, really. Although I guess. Uh, Cheng Yi did say that Han Yu was Han Yu was wrong on most things, but he was uh, right about two things, right? And it's really interesting what he says that Han Yu was right about. Uh, one of these was uh, the idea that you can become a barbarian if you misbehave, right? He says Han Yu was right. Uh, this is exactly what the Chun is about, right? And the second thing was this idea that the way of the sages was lost, right? So Cheng Yi says Han Yu was right. The way of the sages was lost after Manchus. What Han Yu was wrong about was claiming that he had rediscovered it. Han Yu was not actually that good a philosopher that he could make that claim. Han Yu was, uh, you know, philosophy was really too too mixed up and too, uh, uh, too incorrect in its understanding of the classics. So, you know, Cheng Yi says, it's not really Han Yu, right? He, uh, he understood the problem, but he wasn't the solution. The solution is us. And so Neo-Confucianism takes this narrative of the weight of sages that came from Han Yu's uh, essay, Yuan Dao, and makes it their own central narrative as well, right? This idea that the weight of sages was lost for a very long time. Now we've just rediscovered it and everybody else has to basically follow our way of understanding Confucianism. Right, yeah. And um, uh, we, uh, you mentioned uh, just now the, uh, the Guwen revival. So it's not just the Han Yu in his time is an isolated figure, but then by the, um, the mid-11th century, suddenly there's this growing interest in uh, Guwen, but also in Hanyu as a figure, and the emergence of uh, characters like real characters like Shijie and Liu oh, yeah. Kai, mm-hmm. but um, but uh, almost uh, flamboyant in their conservatism and uh, in and how hardline they are on things. I really enjoyed reading the the sort of accounts, not only of the um, the descriptions of these people, but also the way that they were interacting with with figures of their time, and even authority figures that you would normally assume that they would be quite deferential to. Right. Um, Although I wouldn't describe them as conservative so much as, you know, like maybe radically conservative, right? The, 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 the real yeah. conservatives were the ones who kind of thought that things were fine the way that they were. Um, right. And they were uh, trying to argue that that is uh, actually a deviation from the proper norm, uh, the proper Confucian norm. So they were radical in that sense, but their radic- radicalism was, uh, I think, yeah, uh, con- conservative in orientation, right? We need to go back to how the way of the sages used to be. So they're not pr- proposing anything relatively, uh, I mean, they're proposing new stuff, but they are proposing it under the guise, or perhaps they themselves believe it. I think it's quite, quite uh, uh, likely that they really believe that this is not. Uh, something new, but something that actually was very, very old, but that had been lost. So, uh, uh, you know, we, you asked um, a little earlier about, you know, how does Confucius, Confucius fit into this, right? Everything that, every argument that's made uh, coming from, you know, these Guan folks or the neo-Confucian folks has to be framed as this is what Confucius uh, would have done. This is how Confucius really thought. And, uh, you know, I think the Chuan Xiu commentaries that I have a chapter on, um, Kind of also really uh, follow that same pattern, right? That uh, 
anything that you want to say about Chinese-ness and barbarism has to be framed as this is how Confucius thought about it. And that's what, where it gets its authority from, right? It doesn't matter what you think about barbarians and, and you know, Chinese. It doesn't matter what I think about it. What matters is how Confucius thought about it. And if we can understand, if we can kind of figure out what Confucius thought about it, then we had to think the same way because Confucius was a sage and he is never wrong. It's kind of like, um, you know, the way that uh, uh, I would say, you know, Americans, like maybe this doesn't kind of make so much sense with regard to the UK, but, Amer- you know, American politicians, especially on the conservative side, like to basically use the Bible as justification of all kinds of stuff, right? So, you know, what what would Jesus do? Uh, you know, how, what did Jesus think about this thing or that thing, right? What would Jesus think about abortion? What would Jesus think about uh, about LGBT rights or, or same-sex marriage? What would Jesus think about gun rights? Right? You know, it's like there weren't even guns in, in those days. But uh, uh, basically, uh, if you are an evangelical Christian, right, uh, then any, any kind of claim to authority that you have for uh, an idea, has to be framed in terms of well, this is this is what Jesus thought about it, or would have thought about it. Um, so Confucius kind of plays the same role in uh, you know, especially Song, but I would say also Tang uh, period uh, kind of discourse about these questions are uh, that in a way that may strike us as very limiting. Why, why, why don't they ask, you know, what would the Buddha have thought about the difference between Chinese and barbarians? And, you know, the, the answer, I think Liu Zhongyuan, for example, would say the Buddha would have thought that it's not a very important distinction, right? But uh, those, uh, anyone who wants to argue that it is an important distinction and we need to sort of uh, use that distinction to understand how to uh, basically be in the world, you know, how the Chinese empire ought to behave, how, uh, you know, what what morality means, what uh, it means to uh, kind of have a, a a correct foreign policy, what it means to have uh, uh, a proper understanding of uh, what it means to be ethical, right? Uh, the the tendency on on multiple sides that I find uh, in, in these sorts of sources is to say, well, this is what Confucius thought, um, so it's nothing new. We're just uh, we're just rediscovering Confucius Confucius's way of measuring what it means to be Chinese and right. what and Chinese what Chinese people ought to be like. Yes, uh, go ahead, please. Well, yeah, I, I, it just came to mind as well. This is also a pattern that is in and of itself learned from Confucius. Right, Confucius claimed that he was never innovating or creating anything new. He was merely mm-hmm. transmitting. Uh, what had come before so that, yeah that is correct so you know Com- because Confucius claimed that he transmitted the way of the sages right and didn't actually make anything up that was new uh, that, therefore claiming Confucius authority is actually also implicitly claiming the sage king's authority right so this is not just what Confucius thought about it this is what Yao and Shun thought about it because Confucius really merely transmitted the um, that way so yeah it's not even just claiming Confucius authority it's claiming the, the authority of the, of the great sage kings of Chinese antiquity right the, the golden age of you know uh, perfect ideal governance and all that right so so we can say that Han Yu and the Guwen revival they were examples uh, uh, obviously with differences amongst them and subtleties and nuances but they're examples of this idea of ethnicized orthodoxy correct uh, yes, uh, and I, I realize I haven't actually kind of um, explained what ethnocentric moralism is yet because we've been talking more uh, about get uh, to the, that. <laughs> the, the kind of ethnocentric orthodoxy part of the uh, the story so far. Yeah, yeah, 
But uh, so ethnicized orthodoxy, so um, being an orthodox Confucian is Chinese and not being that therefore is to be not Chinese or to be going the way of the barbarian. Would that be a, a, a an adequate summary of that yes, that's, that's essentially the argument that's being made with that way of framing, um, you know, Chineseness. So it's not about it's not about how you dress, not about what language you speak, it's not about uh, uh, where you live or where you're from, where you're born. Um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, geographical or ethnocultural uh, ways of defining Chineseness in an ethnocized orthodox um, kind of argument really do not matter. Right. And that's not to say that someone using the argument would actually literally believe that, uh, you know, language and dress and diet and kind of ge- geographical origin do not matter. Um, it's just that in the context, in the rhetorical context of that argument that is being made, he's, he has to claim that the, they don't matter because that's a way of essentializing Chineseness so that anything that uh, kind of doesn't fit that essentialized picture of Chineseness can then be denigrated as barbaric, right? And that, you know, denigrating something as barbaric is is one of the most powerful rhetorical moves that you can make in that kind of cultural context because everyone sort of assumes that, you know, bar- barbaric means inferior, right? And Chinese means superior. Uh, even if, I guess, they may have friends who are, you know, not ethnically Chinese, whom they don't necessarily routinely regard as inferior. But, uh you know, the, when they slip into the classic classicizing discourse, right? When they start citing Confucius and all that, then, uh, you know, then there is this mode of speaking about Chineseness that is very, very much embedded in a sense of superiority. This idea that the Chinese are morally superior, uh, and the barbarians are morally inferior. So to denigrate something in that context as barbaric is to basically kind of strip it of all its claims to having any moral authority. Right. So Buddhism and Taoism, right, uh, the best way to basically say that they're morally inferior to, to Confucianism, turns out, is to say that, uh, you know, if you're not Confucian, you're not even Chinese. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I, I guess uh, would an, an adequate analogy uh, be, say, in uh, contemporary political discourse in our respective mm-hmm. countries when um, uh, politicians may accuse each other of being unpatriotic or un-American Oh or... yes, uh, that's a that's a very good analogy, right? Uh, I was actually just thinking about that uh, as you were, as you were speaking, right? Yeah, the, this idea of you know this way of behaving is not American, right? It's it, it's essentializing what Americanness means, and uh, it uh, you know uh, being American is is an idea that. Uh, you know, it's open. It's so open to interpretation. But uh, you know, when you essentialize it that way, then you know you're kind of like delegitimizing whatever you're describing as un-American or or uh, non-American. Um, but what does it really mean to be American, right? It's like uh, it's mm. not really that that clear. Uh, another another example might be uh, that even today we still re- we still describe certain ways of behaving as barbaric, right? Uh, when we talk about, um, for example. Um, Let's say the way that some some liberals uh, talk about the Taliban in Afghanistan, right? It's like, oh, you know, these the, what the Taliban are doing to women, right, or to um, gays, or uh, you know, to people who are not Muslim, 
right, is barbaric. So that's a, that's essentially a way of essentializing what the what civilization is about, right? It's like basically anything that fits uh, fits the Western liberal understanding of uh, you know. Uh, human rights, I suppose, right? Anything that fits the Western liberal understanding of human rights is civilized. And if anything that does not, you know, it might be, you know, uh, certain fundamentalist uh, forms of Islam, right? Anything that doesn't fit the, that, that Western model is barbaric. So, uh, you know, I think in the Western world, uh, there are still, you know, ways of speaking that, Sort of like uh, follow the same pattern, right? Where you're essentializing a certain thing that you see as being, um, you know, central to who you are, right? Your identity, and right. uh, you're kind of like drawing boundaries between that thing that you regard as being central to being civilized or being uh, American, let's say, right? Or let's say being Christian, right? Uh, and uh, what doesn't fall within those boundaries. Right. Another word that gets thrown around as well as barbaric is medieval, which uh, I think both, oh, yes. both you and I can relish as being right. yeah. <laughs> uh, involved in medieval history. Right. Um, I wanted to draw attention, uh, sort of having uh, established ethnosized, uh, ethnicized orthodoxy, that the other, the other framing device for this um, in this book that you contrast with that uh, is uh, Moralistic, uh, I've, I've already lost it. Ethnocentric moralism. Yes, yes. <laughs> thank you. Um, right. And you sort of introduced this in chapter three. Um, and I, I have to say, I really like this chapter, chapter three. It's, it's quite isolated uh, in terms of a larger narrative of um, uh, the rest of the book that's sort of his chronology of Han Yu through Guwen to then uh, the late 11th century and uh, 12th century sort of song thinkers. But right. chapter three, it's sort of a masterclass in like reading between the lines of texts. You take uh, two short late Tang essays, um, uh, The Chinese at Heart or Hua Xin and The Call to Arms Against Inner Barbarians or Nei Xi. And these two ostensibly seem to be statements or evidence of views uh, medieval Chinese views on ethnicity. What I really like is that you look at these and not only argue that they're not representative, but try to understand the context in which these texts were produced. Could you give us a little more about like that, the way that, um, uh, about this, the way that we can't just look at texts as transparent mirrors into the way that people think? Right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, these texts have previously often been taken as, as you know, uh, typical of uh, how Tang Chinese uh, people thought about the difference between themselves and other ethnic groups, right? The, the idea that oh, this is this is evidence of Chinese culturalism, right? Or some some uh, I think I know at least I know of at least one Chinese historian who has said, well, this is proof that the late Tang was not xenophobic because they were, you know, they thought that anyone can become Chinese. Um, so, you know, the the way that I think about texts like these is to think of them first and foremost as pieces of rhetoric, right? As as uh, you know, not transparent reflections of how people thought at the time, but really as subverting often the assumptions that people actually had, right? So uh, if you read them against the grain, if you read them uh, as rhetoric, then uh, there, was, there was no reason for them to exist if they are simply stating the obvious. It's precisely because they are creatively or kind of ingeniously subverting or playing with uh, standard assumptions about identity, let's say in this case, right, or ethnicity, uh, that they 
um, actually had to be written in the first place, right? That the the purpose of writing these essays, although we don't know enough about the context in which they were written, and we don't know enough about their authors, right, who were relatively obscure figures, um, uh, the the purpose of writing them was actually to demonstrate or display. Liter- uh, you know, rhetorical or literary creativity that you can take, um, you, had, you you can take uh, uh, ideas and kind of like just flip them around and uh, sort of like actually make them uh, argue them in a way, argue the opposite of what is typically assumed in a way that somehow makes sense. So, um, how did I start reading texts in this way um, when I was? Kind of doing research on you know Tang and Song uh, intellectual history, uh, a lot of this, a lot of influence actually came from uh, reading outside of my field, uh, especially in the field of uh, uh, classical classical Greece and uh, ancient or imperial Rome. Right. So our colleagues who work on uh, Greek or Roman intellectual history are much more sensitive or much more attuned to the problem of what texts are being used to do rhetorically than I think many intellectual historians who work on China, Imperial China, are. Uh, You know, they are uh, much more critical or contextual, right, about the, uh, uh, the fact that many of these Greek and Roman texts are not simply written to state the obvious, but are in fact often written to subvert the obvious. Uh, that they're trying to make a point that would not be you know, self-evident uh, to the audience and may in fact be uh, kind of counterintuitive to the audience. But they're also often making a point to try and uh, advance a certain agenda. There is an agenda behind a lot of these arguments that are made. right? And uh, that argument may not be about uh, barbarians or you know, other ethnic groups in the first place. It may be about something else. But the, the barbarian is being used as a rhetorical prop, right? a to- rhetorical device uh, to make certain arguments about something else. Right? Like, for example, if you essentialize barbarism, then you can make arguments about how m- morality is, is you know, paramount, right? that nothing, uh, nothing should, should come before barbarism. Uh, you know, behaving morally, so ethnocentric moralism essentially is that kind of argument. That uh, you know, that what what makes the Chinese Chinese is the fact that they are moral, and the barbarians are not. And so, if uh, if the Chinese be, behave immorally, right, uh, according to certain standards for judging what is moral and what is not, then they are not Chinese anymore, right? And therefore, their superiority is lost, and then bad things are, are going to follow from that. Um, so, um, the reason I think that. Uh, a lot of the intellectual history of Imperial China, as it's been done um, in the past, hasn't been, I think, mindful enough of the rhetorical aspects. Is because uh, rhetoric does not have the prestige or the respect in Chinese culture that it does in the Western world, right? And this goes back to the difference between, you know, Confucius and, uh, let's say. Uh, the Greek and Roman philosophers. Now, of course, uh, I guess you could say Socrates also was kind of down on the sophists, right? He thought that the sophists were just twisting logic to kind of make logically dubious or philosophically dubious uh, arguments. But, uh, you know, it kind of goes beyond just that question of sophistry, right? Or or kind of logical 
flaws or logical errors when it comes to Confucius, right? The, the thing is that Confucius in the LX basically said that glib talkers are politically bad news, right? That uh, when you have someone who speaks eloquently, that is often a symptom of, uh, you know, some kind of moral deficiency, right? Uh, and, and the idea is that uh, if you can't speak very eloquently, um, that may not be uh, a demerit or, uh, you know, a liability because, you know, it maybe reflects the fact that you are not good at twisting uh, or kind of packaging your ideas to make something that is actually morally or ethically or philosophically wrong appear right. So, of course, Confucius was, was uh, you know, reacting against, uh, you know, the uh, so-called persuaders of his time, right? People who would go from state to state trying to um, impress a ruler uh, with their ability to kind of speak well and make an argument sound really uh really compelling, right? And Confucius probably lacked that ability, which is why he never got a job outside of his home state, right? He, he basically believed that his moral, um, his moral uh, integrity and his moral um, kind of authority would be enough to sway rulers to accept his ideas. It never was. Um, so you could basically think that, you know, we could maybe read Confucius as being a bit of a, you know, a sour puss, Right or being envious in that regard, when he kind of like says that glib talkers uh, always have something morally wrong with them, but you know that that way of thinking about the, the skill in rhetoric tends to persist later on in Chinese history, even though many of these uh, literati that uh, you know I talk about in the book actually you would say they were masters of rhetoric, right? Ouyang Xiu was was uh, you know an excellent stylist. I'm not sure what he was like as a speaker, right? But as a writer, he was, uh, you know, just, and so was Han Yu for that matter, right? These guys were all rhetorically very, very skilled, right? Not necessarily with the spoken word, but with the written word, which in China tends to get more respect, right? The way you write eloquently tends to be seen as more, uh, you know, less susceptible to uh, kind of rhetorical, uh What's the best word to describe it? You know, rhetorical uh, sophistry, perhaps, right? Than the way that you speak. I don't actually know that that is true. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's kind of intuitive to us, right? We we think that what we what we say orally tends to be less packaged or less, you know, uh, you know, open to uh, maybe kind of dishonest or decept- deceptive uses of the language than what we write. Because when we write, we have had more time to kind of think about how we're going to do it most effectively rhetorically. Whereas speaking sometimes, especially kind of extemporaneously, uh, we can't necessarily dress up our ideas that well, right? Or it takes a certain amount of uh, kind of skill skill to be able to do that. Uh, and yet, <clears throat> in in Imperial China, there was this assumption that uh, you know writing was more of a transparent reflection, especially if the calligraphy was, uh, you know, could be used as an indicator of the person's character, right? That, uh, yeah, writing and the way that the calligraphy that was written in, the handwriting that was written in, right, it, was, it allows you to judge a person's morality, whereas um, how a person speaks can be, can be deceiving, right? You can't trust eloquent speakers because you never know what they really think. So you have, uh, you have these, uh, you know, uh, neo-Confucians 
who essentially uh, make the point that they are saying exactly what they think, right? That there is no rhetoric going into what they say at all, right? That they're, what they're saying is completely transparent. It's completely artless. Um, uh, you know, rhetoric is what the people who do one do, but the, the people who do Tao, on the other hand, the way, right? Don't do it. So um, here I'm kind of gesturing towards uh, this very um, influential uh, book by Peter Bull, this culture of ours, right? Where he kind of takes the Tang Song transition, sort of like some, some of the same figures that I've looked at, you know, Han Yu, Ouyang Xiu, Shi Jie, the Cheng brothers, and um, argues that there's this dichotomy, this sort of conceptual or intellectual dichotomy between between one, which is uh, essentially comes to be understood as the art of writing, right? And Dao, which is the way, the kind of moral way of the, uh, of the universe. And um, that, you know, the Guan writers essentially see... Uh, one as um, an effective instrument for transmitting or communicating um, the way. But then when you get eventually to the Neo-Confucians, they have this skepticism or suspicion about one and a rejection of uh, you know good writing or good prose, literary stylistics perhaps, as um, something that you know makes philosophical, argumentation more effective, right? And they essentially are making a case that uh, one can actually get in the way of Tao because you can use very good one to get away with having very lousy Tao. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. What I also uh, kind of appreciate about your approach to rhetoric uh, as mm-hmm. well, particularly in chapter three, is yeah. not only you looking at necessarily the way that the writing conveys uh, certain ideas eloquently or rhetorically, but also uh, structural elements to it, the, the the context in which the writings are produced, uh, where I think um, one of these essays you posit was actually written to flatter someone uh, that the writer wanted to be employed by. And so it was a yes. reflection of certain decisions that an official made. Uh, and it was uh, this writer had created a, a philosophical or a, a classicist kind of justification and legitimation of those decisions involving involving foreigners uh and another one again was also sort of reflecting certain political events but kind of uh jockeying or lobbying almost um the position of a writer uh is is what we spe- uh, is what you speculate uh though that you know we have limited understandings of who these writers were Right. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, we have limited understanding of um, of what exactly uh, these writers, Chen An and Cheng Yan, were uh, uh, sort of reacting to or responding to in the immediate context when they wrote these pieces. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I tried as far as possible to try and sort of like relate what's in these pieces to their, um, you know, their backgrounds and their life situation, right? Like, you know, the guy who wrote the Chinese at heart or the Chinese heart uh, pretty much was a perennially unsuccessful exam candidate. He took, he sat for the Jinshi examination multiple times and never passed. Um, I think not necessarily because he wasn't up to it in terms of literary skill, uh, or understanding of the classics, although yeah, maybe maybe kind of like he he had, had something lacking there as well. But uh, more of because like he, uh, he was uh, from the far south, right? He was from Tianzhou, and uh, he just uh, you know did not have the right connections um, in the capital region. He couldn't find a patron, 
And so, uh, you know, that's what led me to argue that actually it is that search that I, I would say increasingly desperate search for a patron among the high officialdom of Chang'an, right? That uh, most likely led him to write a piece like this. Um, it's not necessarily, uh, I mean, the, the argument was has been made before that uh, he is actually re- responding, con- sort of contributing to an actual debate at the Tang Imperial Court over whether this Arab guy, uh, Li Yansheng, who had passed the Jinshi uh, exam, should be allowed to serve in government, right? Uh, given that he's of a non-Chinese ethnicity, right? Uh, you know, I just find that kind of implausible. But because you know, who actually was Chen An when this thing was written? He was a nobody. That was he had no place uh, having any voice or any say in that debate. If there was a debate in the first place, right? And uh, it doesn't seem that uh, there's no other evidence that there that, that was a debate about this person, right? We only know, we only have this one essay that claims that, uh, you know, somebody who is not even named questioned why uh, an Arab man um, ought to be employed in the town government when there are Chinese candidates who are as qualified as he is, right? Um, so, uh, you know, given Chen An's circumstances, given that he, he was uh, a, relatively, a relatively obscure and unsuccessful exam candidate, right? Why would he write something like this? The, you know, to me, the, to my mind, the most likely reason is really to suck up to the person who, who he is essentially flattering in this uh, essay, not the Arab exam candidate, right? Although, of course, he does say good things about that person, but the person... Uh, the examiner, right? Not the examiner, actually. I would say that it was actually the guy who sponsored Li Yansheng to take the exams, right? Um, this person, Lu Jun, uh, who was a high official and actually had become a provincial governor uh, by the time that the essay was written. Uh, my, my sense of it is that uh, you know, Chen An was trying to impress this person by saying good stuff about him. Right, uh, you know that's not that's by no means uncommon. That, that in the highly competitive uh, examination world of uh, the late Tang, uh, these portfolios of essays were circulated uh, to potential patrons or to the examiners um, by pretty much every candidate. Right, and it wouldn't wouldn't be uh, sort of uh, hard to imagine that some of the essays would have included arguments that were meant to make the potential patron feel flattered or feel good about themselves right uh yeah and if we move on now to just look at the uh, the final two chapters uh, of, of the book uh chapter mm-hmm. five and chapter six something i noticed in these uh chapter five deals with um the ideas of barbarization in the 11th century annals or chuncho exegesis and uh chapter six is about chineseness and barbarism in early daoshue um, or Neo-Confucian philosophy. Something I noticed that runs through these two chapters. In chapter five, when you examine the annals and the interpretation, it's a real deep dive into how different passages of the annals are sort of uh, contested, readings of them contested by different uh, intellectuals uh, and generating debates about the nature of what Confucian thought was Chinese and what he thought was barbarian. And then in chapter six, you it, we zoom in even further and by looking at the Neo-Confucians, often it is disputes over single characters in individual passages 
uh, in the Confucian Analects. I was wondering if you could talk more about like what is at stake in these contested readings of sometimes very, very small passages or individual words right. in these texts. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, to our minds, not very much is at stake, right? Why all this kind of... Um, why all this debate and disagreement over just the meaning of, uh, uh, you know, uh, language in the in the Chunqiu or the Annals, uh, or let's say um, in Analects three point five, right? Um, the in the case of Analects three point five, it's really just two words, buru, uh, that uh, people are disagreeing about. Um, you know, just. Why were they doing this, right? Didn't they have better things to do with their time? Uh, so the uh, the tradition of Chunqiu commentary, right? And you could take it, this goes back to the Han and even earlier, uh, you know, probably to to the um, Warring States or late Warring States period. The tradition of uh, Chunqiu commentary is to uh, really sort of um, parse every uh, word and every passage for encoded or hidden messages from Confucius. Right. The idea was that uh, the Twentio or the Annals was not just a historical chronicle. If you read it just as a chronicle, then it doesn't really have that much information compared to, let's say, the the Zhuan or the Shizhi. Right. Uh, it's it's not a very not a very useful text um, for studying history because it just doesn't have much detail uh, in its narrative. Uh, it's very bare bones uh, and you know very terse in its its language, but. Uh, you know, the the Chunqiu commentators basically developed this um, strategy or this method of reading uh, the Chunqiu as uh, you could say the Confucius code, right? Uh, you have you have uh, a code, a, a coded uh, you know series of moral moral judgments from Confucius on various rulers, and uh, you know the idea of uh, Confucius. Encoding language, using language, encode the idea that certain bar- uh, certain rulers are behaving barbarically, right? Or that certain barbarian rulers have been promoted to the level of being Chinese. Um, uh, that's just part of that whole you know, method or, or system. There are many other uh, kind of uh, decoding strategies or decoding uh, kind of concepts or principles. In Twenty Commentary or Twenty Two ex- Exegesis, uh, but uh, you know it's 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 interesting to me that uh, in the uh, in the Song period, the uh, practice of kind of writing new commentaries on the Twenty really took off. Right, that was not necessarily the case um, in the period between the Han and the Song. Uh, in the late Tang period, there was some interest in doing that, but uh, you know. It, by no means as as widespread um, or as popular as in the song. But in the song period, literati really took to the idea that uh, the old commentaries on the Trinity were all untrustworthy, unreliable, um, wrong on you know uh, many many things, and that uh, you had to go back to the original Trinity text and sort of reinterpret it anew. So what you have uh, a lot of these literati doing is, you know, just claiming the authority or claiming the insight to be able to understand what Confucius really meant in a way that for centuries commentators had missed. Um, so uh, there are neo-Confucian philosophers doing this. There are Guwen writers doing this. 
people from di- just different backgrounds and different uh, kind of ideological persuasions uh, are all engaged in this uh, in this activity of trying to figure out just what Confucius actually meant in certain passages of the Trinitual. And uh, one of the things that they do with that, right, it's certainly not necessarily, not necessarily the focus, uh, but it's one of the things that they do is uh, you know, they try to read um, ethnocentric moralism into the Trinitual, into into the code. Right. So uh, why are they doing that? I, I would say it's probably because the idea was simply was popular. It was circulating. They're not necessarily trying to justify um, the idea of ethnocentric moralism itself by kind of uh, basing it or rooting it in uh, uh, the Confucian classics, because the assumption already is that it's a Confucian idea. It, it, it is how Confucius understood what being Chinese means. So uh, it kind of like, to my mind, it's natural that when you have literati who have this assumption in their heads that Confucius thought in ethnocentric moralist terms, that when they are trying to figure out what Confucius was saying through the Trinity, they would, uh, of course, also assume that certain passages that seem to or could be interpreted in the ethnocentric moralist way actually are um, saying precisely that. Uh, and then you have the, the analects uh, which again, I think you know, uh, LX three point five, which is part of chapter six. Uh, you have a very interesting uh, change in how the Neo Confucians thought about this passage. Right, for centuries, the Chinese had assumed that the the, the meaning of LX three point five, right, this uh, uh, very short and cryptic sentence that where Confucius says um, that barbarians are ruler, barbarians with rulers are. <coughs> Not like, right? They are buru, um, Chinese states without rulers. Right? What does buru actually mean here? Right? The 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 standard understanding of buru in classical Chinese uh, was that it means not as good as, inferior to, right? So Confucius was understood uh, as saying that uh, even when the barbarians have rulers, they are still not on the same level as they're not uh, as as uh, Civilized as or as moral as Chinese states that don't have a ruler, right? So he's in other words making a kind of absolute ethnocentric statement about how barbarians can never measure up to Chinese moral standards, um, even when they're getting their politics right. Um, so uh, you know why would Cheng Yi and, and Cheng Yi was not the first person to do this uh, as I argue in chapter six. There was this late Eastern Han commentator Zheng Xuan, who seems to have done it, although we don't understand enough about why he read the passage that way, right? But, uh, you know, the mainstream interpretation was that Confucius was saying the barbarians are always going to be inferior to the Chinese. Now, what Cheng Yi did, right, with, uh, seemingly without drawing upon any earlier commentary, whether it was Zheng Xuan's or anybody else's, right, but really kind of like uh, saying something that just went against uh, against the tide, uh, is uh, he was saying that uh, what Confucius meant by buru was that they were actually not as bad as, not not as good as, but not as bad as, right? So um, that the barbarians have rulers, and so they are actually in a better state. They are actually in better condition morally than the Chinese states that have lost their rulers, and so. Why would why would uh, someone argue that 
right, and give up one of the kind of strongest or more uh, uh, kind of most unequivocal statements about Chinese superiority, right? Um, again, I believe that Afrocentric moralism is shaping or uh, kind of influencing Cheng Yi's understanding here, right? Uh, and my reason for um, making that argument uh, is based not just on uh, on Cheng Yi, uh, but on what later neo-Confucian philosophers did with Cheng Yi's interpretation to try and explain or rationalize or justify it, right? Juicy uh, in particular, but not just him. So essentially, the, the argument goes that uh, Confucius could not have meant to say that Chinese states without rulers are still okay, right? They're still better off than barbarians. So, you know, Juicy in particular said, you know, how, what good would it have done for Confucius to say that, right? Wouldn't that just be giving a free pass to the Chinese to behave in an anarchic and, you know, disloyal sort of way, right? Um, in other words, ethnocentrism to Juicy was not an adequate excuse for um, saying that not having a ruler by which he understands not a temporary state of, you know, doing about a ruler for a year or two, right? Uh, but really a state of mind in which you do not respect your ruler, right? You kind of like basically do not respect the authority of the ruler, right? That's what it means by, uh, you know, Wu Jun, not having a ruler. That's how that's how Juicy understands it. And that's how I believe Cheng Yi also understood it. So uh, Confucius could not, could, could not possibly have wanted to imply that just because the Chinese are, superior to barbarians, therefore they don't have to um, respect their rulers. So uh, out of that comes this, this way of salvaging morally this um, passage in the Analex by saying it's not about Chinese superiority. It's about the fact that uh, Confucius is lamenting that the Chinese states have declined morally to the extent that the barbarian states are even better than them, which is, of course, the implication is that that should not be the norm. The norm should be that the Chinese are way superior to the barbarians morally. Um, and yet Confucius basically was living in a time when that was no longer the case. Right, yeah. And so all of these uh, all of these debates that we see that are taking place over several centuries from, uh, from the mid to late Tang all the way into the Southern Song, uh, there's a lot of anxiety about whether one could become a barbarian, whether barbarians could become Chinese. And in your conclusion, we finally see some barbarians. Uh, because yeah, some real barbarians coming in and actually having a say. Yes. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, we've sort of covered like the, uh, the, the barbarians as a rhetorical prop throughout these intellectual debates. Mm -hmm. So I'd like you to uh, kind of sort of summarize. Um, when these barbarians, uh, when we bring barbarians, actual barbarians into the picture, what are the uh, implications of the geopolitical situation of the time that these writers and thinkers uh, are producing these works? And uh, yeah, the, the barbarians of the time. Right. So, um, you know, one of, my, one of my basic positions is that, uh, you know, the, the Guan writers, whether in the late Tang or in the Northern Song, uh, and even the early Neo-Confucians, right? We're talking about the, the Cheng brothers um, and their disciples. We're not uh, obsessed with this idea of keeping the barbarians out or keeping barbaric or foreign things out of Chinese civilization, right? That was not their main preoccupation. Uh, the uh, Han Yu and his imitators among the Guwen uh, community 
were, uh, were obsessed with the idea of reviving the way of the sages, right? What they understood as orthodoxy, right? And uh, they did believe that Chinese civilization was in decline, but not because the barbarians had been rebelling against Chinese rule or had been uh, invading the, uh, the Chinese empire, right? The, that, was, that was not really what they were about. Um, and the same thing was true of um, the, the Song Dynasty, uh, the, the, the late Northern Song thinkers. They were not uh, kind of in a state of mind that was constantly uh, worried about the Kitan Liao invading or the Xixia for that matter, right? Um, they saw themselves as living in a time of peace and security in which uh, you know, the Song had a foreign policy that was effective in keeping the barbarians at bay. So what they were really concerned about was internal moral decline. And the, the specter of barbarization or, or moral barbarism was a, a tool that they used to accentuate um, or uh, justify the anxiety, right? to sort of uh, uh, convince their readers, their audience, that morality really matters. Right? It's not just a, you know pie-in-the-sky idealistic uh, stuff that basically has, has no relation to questions of, let's say, political reform. Uh, morality should be central, according to, to some of these folks. And uh, the way they argue that is by basically saying, if you're not moral, then you're not even Chinese anymore, right? So just why, 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 why would you even want to go there? Um, so identity, ethnic identity, or you know, the sense of ethnic superiority, right? That uh, the Ch- the Chinese literati tended to have internalized from studying the classics for years and years. Right? and uh, studying certain passages like NLX 3.5 or the Chunxiu commentaries, right? This sense, this this assumption, basic assumption among Chinese literati that the the barbarians are inferior and the Chinese are superior, right? And the Chinese have this thing, this thing that's not just an empire but a civilization state, where you know the the, the borders of the Chinese imperial state kind of are coterminous, right, or correspond with the border between civilization and barbarism, right? These ideas pretty much were uh, the shared consensus of the literati, right? And uh, because they were that shared consensus, uh, the literati could play with these ideas as a way of advancing certain arguments or agendas or intellectual positions that they had. Now, um, in the uh, in the conclusion, as you mentioned, right, We be- I-, I kind of like try to have a look at what the what real barbarian states or empires you know did they have any impact on how all this was done right the, the use of, of the barbarians rhetorical prop you know how how would that change when the barbarians finally do become a threat which i argue uh was not the case for for the northern song for most of the northern song at least right the the barbarians were not seen as an existential threat to the song state uh nor in the late tang uh, were the barbarians, let's say the Tibetan Empire, necessarily seen as an existential threat? Uh, you know, Hanri was not obsessed with you know keeping the Tibetans out, for example. Uh, nor nor did he see, let's say, the, the Anlushan Rebellion as necessarily a kind of like a barbarian versus Chinese sort of thing. Um, so there is there, there is kind of common misconceptions about what is driving these thinkers that I try I seek to kind of correct uh, in the book. But uh, what, how does that change in the Southern Song when the Jurchens actually do come to be seen as a sort of existential threat to the Song state? 
um, because they've gone and invaded and taken over North China and reduced the Southern Song state to vassalage for at least a number of decades. Um, well, actually about 20 years. And then, you know, the, the treaty is uh, sort of revised so that uh, the Song, the Southern Song gets a little bit of its dignity back, even though it still does not have military supremacy by any means. Um, so, uh, you know, here's here's a, something that, I, you know, probably most people don't know. Uh, this this book originally was supposed to include Southern Song material as well. It actually had four more chapters in it. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was actually uh... going to go all the way up to around 1200 and maybe even kind of look at the transition from Southern Song to, to Yuan rule, to Mongol rule in the conclusion, right? There was a lot more uh, that was supposed to be in the book. Uh, and and that, that's partly because my dissertation actually had a very, uh, had a, a wider scope, right? It started in the early tongue and went all the way up to uh, the Mongol conquest of Southern Song. So uh, the, the book as you currently, as you now have it, uh, is, is not as long and as broad in scope as it originally was conceived. Um, but essentially, I was given 90,000 words to work with. And I decided, okay, the Summon Song material has to go because there's no way I can fit everything into 90,000 words. So um, that Summon Song material um, has found its way into some other stuff that I've written. Uh, and that is coming out maybe, uh, I would say next year. Um, so, so, so articles here and there, um, although I've not used all of it yet, but, uh, I mean, my, my sense of it is that uh, something does kind of change in the Southern Song, which is that, uh, the idea that the Chinese, uh, civilization state has to be ruled only by Chinese emperors or a Chinese dynasty begins to take on more um, more force, right? The 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 Tang and Song literati were kind of not necessarily very concerned about this question of whether barbarians can become emperors, right? Um, you know, sometimes they had debates about that, but it wasn't really a, a you know a, a, a very very compelling or very important question to them. They kind of did it for fun once in a while. Um, but they didn't felt, feel a need to come up with a kind of like a clear answer. But in the Southern Song, then it, it, the the question actually takes on a serious or uh, you know a central uh, uh, character, right? And then when you get to when you get to the Ming, which is following on the uh, period of Mongol rule, then that question of Chinese supremacy, right? Should the civilization state always only ever be ruled by ethnically Chinese rulers? Right? Can it ever be ruled by barbarians and still remain the civilization state? Um, the Neo-Confucian thinkers in the Ming, uh, you know, are often very, very much concerned with trying to figure it out, um, and, and that basically has to do with uh, the fact that after the Jurchen invasion of the 1120s, right, the for the first time there is, you know, a real kind of sense of anxiety. That uh, that that there could uh, be a world that comes out of this geopolitical situation in which the barbarians rule everywhere, right? Uh, the Chinese have not previously had to contend with the idea um, or the reality, maybe the idea they could imagine, but the reality of a world in which the entire civilization state, right, the entire Chinese civilizational sphere, is taken over by barbarian conquerors. Um, 
So yeah, I mean, like uh, in the early medieval period, the Northern Wei was strong for a time, but then you know it never got anywhere close to conquering South China. And by the time the Sui Dynasty conquered South China, it had taken to basically claiming itself to be an ethnically Chinese dynasty, right? Even though you know modern historians had doubts about that, and the Tang was the same, right? Uh, you know, there's still debates about you know what the ancestry of the Tang actually was, but it, uh, it obviously claimed to be. Um, you know, Chinese on the paternal line, um, and even trace its ancestry back to, you know, to Laozi, the, the great sage of of Taoism. So, uh, when the Jurchens conquer North China, then uh, you know the Neo-Confucian thinkers start to have to wrestle with this question of, uh, you know, what happens now, right? We've been talking about barbarization as though it's something that you know happens if we behave, mis- if we misbehave. And you know, behave uh, immorally, but uh, now we're kind of like looking at the the possibility that the barbarians actually could conquer us, and that you know there would, uh, for the first time in history, not be any Chinese dynasty ruling any part of the civilized world. Um, so, of course, the Southern Song doesn't uh, actually face. Uh, it, it is able to outlast the Jurchenjian Empire, but then the Mongols come along and actually do conquer it, right? Uh, and so, um, in the Yuan period, uh, you know, for political reasons, it's not uh, expedient or not um, not convenient for uh, Chinese literati to really explore this idea of you know is barbarian rule okay, right? Or those who actually do tend to. Um, come down on the side of barbarian rule is okay under certain circumstances, right? The mandate of heaven is clearly uh, in the hands of, of barbarian rulers and they know how to respect Confucianism, especially Neo-Confucianism, then, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, right? Then when you get to the Ming, uh, then you have you have more voices emerging that say, well, no, actually, you know, th- that there can never be a legitimate situation where barbarians rule over the civilization state and it actually is... Okay, so uh, yeah, I mean, like the book, except for that uh, part of the conclusion, doesn't really go into this question of uh, you know what happens when the barbarians come and invade us, right? Like then what happens with uh, all this talk that we have about uh, you know Chineseness is not about ethnicity; it's really just about how moral you are, right? Uh, the uh, that's an interesting thing, right? As I as I argue in this in the introduction. Right. Most of these guys who are using the ethnocized orthodoxy discourse or the ethnocentric moralism discourse are not using it to argue that barbarians can become moral, civilized beings or even you know, assimilate and become Chinese. That's not really what they care about. What they care about is you don't want to become a barbarian ever because that means losing your superiority. Um, right. But uh, when the barbarians do take over parts of the civilization state or even like all of it, then you begin to have... Uh, you know, pro Jin or pro Yuan uh, literati of Chinese extraction, uh, you know, justifying their choice to serve a so called barbarian dynasty by taking the words of the ethnocized orthodox or ethnocentric moralist uh, writers and thinkers and using them to their advantage. That's when you begin to have Han Yu's. Uh, statement, famous statement about when Confucius wrote the uh, the the Chunqiu, the Annals, um, he basically used ritual norms uh, as the standard for 
distinguishing between Chinese rulers and barbarian rulers. That's when you begin to have that statement being taken out of context, right? And used to justify barbarian rule. Um, you have, uh, you know, uh, under, I'm sorry, the, the phone is ringing, uh, but uh, it will, let's just ignore it. Um, you have uh, in, in the Yuan, in the Ming, and, uh, you know, famously in the Qing with the uh, Yongzheng Emperor, Right, people making these arguments that you know this is what Han Yu said about Confucius' standard for judging who was Chinese and who was barbarian, and that's not just Han Yu. It was is actually Confucius himself. Han Yu was right about what Confucius thought. Uh, so, uh, in other words, the justification of barbarian rule as being legitimate and you know equal uh, in kind of moral worth to Chinese rule. Uh, takes the ethnocentric and ethnocized orthodox arguments and uses them in a way that they were not actually meant to be used or in a way that they were not originally used. But because these arguments have become so so uh, you know widely known and actually widely accepted, right? It's a pretty natural but nonetheless quite quite clever move still to take them and use them in that way. Well, this is a really great sort of uh, uh, kind of exposition on the, the the intellectual lineage of the ways that um, not only barbarians are used as these rhetorical props, but also then how anxieties about barbarians or even positive things about barbarians feature in this discourse uh, over the various dynastic vicissitudes of uh, Chinese history. Now, uh, I'm aware we've uh, we've taken up quite a lot of your time, uh, sure. Xiaoyan. So, um, uh, Germany and New, New Books Network uh, kind of tradition is the uh, the final question, then, which you've already partially answered. Uh, but um, could you tell us what you're working on now and what your future projects might might be? Oh, what okay. shape they might take. Right. So, what what I'm working on now uh, actually is a source book, a collection of primary sources. Uh, about uh, ethnicity in Chinese history. Uh, well, not all of Chinese history, but uh, mostly imperial Chinese history, although the first chapter uh, includes some pre-imperial stuff like you know um, bits from the, the Trinity commentaries, from the Analects, from the Manchus, and so on. So, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, the idea for this partly came from uh, a colleague that I have at Denison University, where I teach, who produced... Um, you know, a number of years ago, uh, a source book uh, on race and ethnicity in the ancient world. So, the, the ancient Greek and Roman world. Uh, so, you have you know like Aristotle and a whole bunch of other Greek and Roman writers and thinkers. Um, and and I realized that there wasn't something like that for the Chinese material. Uh, that. Uh, quite a bit has been written about ethnicity in imperial Chinese history, uh, usually focusing on this period or that period, right? Not necessarily across the whole sweep of that, right? We have a book on Tang, you know, ethnicity in the Tang, for example. We have a book on, uh, you know, the question of whether there was nationalism in the Song, in the Northern Song, uh, and, and so on. But uh, to, to my mind, one of the reasons why uh, scholars haven't been able really to kind of look at the development of Chinese ideas about ethnicity, uh, about Chineseness, about barbarism, and so on, um, over that long span of Chinese imperial histories, because we don't have a collection of sources that puts them puts the relevant material all in the same place, so that 
we can kind of look at that and trace how things change over time, um, which is kind of like what I've been trying to do in my work. Um, and so because I've been doing that, I am actually aware of the existence of a lot of intertext intertextual connections between, let's say, Tang writings and Song writings and Ming writings. And of course, they all tend to kind of go back to using classical passages, right, from the Manchus, from the Amulex, from the Chunzhu, and so on. So the whole thing is extremely intertextual, right? They're all building on what other people have said or taking it and using it for new purposes, for example, you know, using Han Yu to justify barbarian rule, as I was just talking about not so long ago. Um, so if we could have a source book that translates all these different texts um, that are often in conversation with one another across uh, different historical periods, uh, then you know we could begin to have uh, more, I would say, sophisticated and nuanced work being done uh, into what these ideas are actually being used to do in different periods and how they change uh, in terms of how they're used. Yeah, this that that sounds like a really valuable resource that I certainly would love <laughs> to have access to. So I, I look forward to that uh, coming to fruition. Um, oh, thanks. And also, of course, the uh, the, the articles that you say uh, uh, that are going to take shape uh, based on the work that you had to cut out of this right. uh, this uh, book. So the, the 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 article that is coming out within the near future uh, is called. Um, the Song Jurchen conflict in, in Chinese intellectual history. It has a subtitle that's kind of long, and I can't quite remember it right now. Uh, or maybe it doesn't. I, maybe I cut that out. Uh, but it's coming out in a in a, a volume called War and Peoplehood in the in the Middle Ages, uh, which is quite uh, you know self consciously comparative. Uh, it, it basically has. Uh, I I think I'm the only person who's writing about the Song uh, or about uh, you know a Chinese ruled dynasty. In the volume, uh, there is a chapter about the Mongol Empire, uh, but uh, the others are about medieval Europe or the Byzantine Empire, for example. So uh, basically, that volume is trying to kind of ask some questions about what military conflict, what impact military conflict has on identity discourses. This idea of uh, you know self and other in medieval history, right, as broadly mm -hmm. defined, right, including not just the Western world but also also Asia. Nice. Well, that yeah. sounds like a great project. Right. It's, it's, uh, coming, out, it's coming out next year, um, probably, although I haven't heard uh, any updates recently. Yeah. Well, okay. I'd like to thank you uh, once again, uh, Xiaoyun, for being on the show today. Thank just you. It's to a pleasure. Listeners, oh, uh, just to remind listeners that uh, today we covered The Way of the Barbarians, Redrawing Ethnic Boundaries in Tang and Song China by Professor Xiaoyun Yang, uh, who's at Denison uh, University. Um. And yeah, I really enjoyed this book. Thank you for coming on and take care. Thank you very much, Lance. Take care. Bye. Bye.